is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Hello and welcome to the program. Great to have you on board and making us part of your day. We always thank you for that. Today, you will hear from the farmers that support new large-scale transmission projects across their property and you'll hear from those who say they will lock out workers on the project in both New South Wales and Victoria. Somewhat connected to that, you'll also learn about the new largest cooperative research centre in Australia and what it plans for agriculture. And today, you'll also hear from a visiting academic that wants to challenge current debates and strongly held beliefs in farming and food production. I wonder if you agree or disagree with some of these statements. He thinks this about the future of animals in food production systems. And I hope to some extent that we start to challenge a little bit some of the things that are coming out from the sort of vegan vegetarian movements that livestock are not necessary. Livestock are very necessary within an agricultural system. They are important points of actually recycling nutrients in those systems. And that seems to have been forgotten. And he thinks this about the growth of regenerative agriculture in Australia, spearheaded by many farmers in this state in Victoria. What I'm encouraged by is it is the movement of regenerative farming. We're now talking about the importance of soil health and how do we actually not just maintain soil health, but how do we add to soil health? And people are starting to challenge ideas and, and, and philosophies about farming that have been very strong for maybe a 50-year period. Look, that interview is coming up later on in the program. You've just heard those, though. I wonder what you think about statements like that, if it's something that should be talked about more to try and move the needle of agricultural and particularly how food is created and the debate around it in Australia. You, you can send a text 0467 842 722. You can always call as well 1300 977 two. Up next, though, we'll talk power lines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. It's a debate you probably feel like you've heard before, but now it's in southern New South Wales where farmers are divided about what the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, is calling a once-in-a-generation infrastructure project connecting wind and solar farms to energy customers in New South Wales and Victoria and elsewhere in the grid. Energy provider Transgrid unveiled its preferred route for about 200 kilometres of high-voltage V&I West transmission lines through farmland in New South Wales at the end of January. We've heard a lot about the Victorian section of the V&I West. Now, farmers in New South Wales are looking at that route that's been announced for their communities some are happy, many are not, as Elsie Kennedy reports. The New South Wales section of the V&I West transmission line will connect Victoria's transmission network and the solar and wind projects that feed power into it to New South Wales network, where dozens of new wind and solar projects are in early stages of planning. It will then feed that power to regional towns and cities on both sides of the border. At one end of the preferred route, 60 kilometres north of the New South Wales town of Gerildery, a group of farmers have signed up to host one of Australia's largest onshore wind farms. They're welcoming the money and the new jobs the transmission line will bring to their community. Grazier Peter Robertson is one of eight farmers who have committed to hosting the Yanko Delta Wind Project on his Merino sheep property. Yeah, about three years ago, some guys came to us and asked if we'd be interested in um, hosting wind turbines on our property. It seemed to me that as we're a Reno wool enterprise and it's natural country where I haven't, none of my places ever been ploughed, I thought, well, 
wind turbines are pretty good use for part of it because we can still run the sheep and um, it's a fairly isolated area. There's no houses within four or five k's that I'm aware of of any any of the proposed wind turbines and um, it'd be a pretty sensible area to build something like that. And, and what kind of benefits will it have for your farm and for your farm business, do you think? Oh, well, we get paid an allowance per turbine per year. So it's a pretty financial, just very, very healthy. You know, things are, I'm not the largest farmer around the district and uh, it would certainly make a big difference to my bottom line. The Yanko Delta project received New South Wales government approval in December. It will include 208 wind turbines, which will deliver up to 1.5 gigawatts of electricity. It's also promised to bring 300 new jobs to the farming region during its construction phase and 30 ongoing jobs during operation. Belgian project developer Viria Energy will pay Mr Robertson between $10,000 and $15,000 per wind turbine per year for the life of the project. I've got four children. Um, at the moment, none of them are actively involved in the farm as such, but I think, um, you know, once we've got a bit extra money, I might be able to find a bit more work for them to do, if you know what I mean. The VNI West transmission line, which will connect to the Anco Delta project, will run along Mr Robertson's boundary fence. He says he's got no objections to it. They've got to build these things somewhere. It's not, they're not doing it purely for my benefit. Um, I think it's a very sensible place to put it as being that there's, um, there's virtually no virtually no um, population, you know, that's going to interfere with. But not everybody is happy about VNI West. Cobramunger grazier and crop grower Simon Ettershank, who farms irrigated crops and sheep on the banks of the Murray River, said the project would face major challenges from his community. I found out about it on the Thursday before the Australia Day long weekend and I was uh, fairly shocked, to be honest, when I opened up. What kind of uh, conversations have you had with Transgrid up until now? I've consulted with them fairly closely. I thought the best way would be to work with them to ensure that if this was going to go ahead, that it didn't impact on my property and community. So I sat down with them with a map of my property, showed them where my house was, where my high-value irrigation land is, where I have camping spots that I rent out as part of my business and an environmental area that I've fenced off along a creek and planted trees. Um, I just pointed out these are areas that I didn't think were appropriate for a, a, a huge run through. And that all went, went fairly well, I thought. They, they took notes of it, wrote on the map where these areas were. And then I received the email to say that it's pretty much going right through all of that. So past my house, through my irrigation, through these environmental areas, and right through the middle of my property. So I, I just could not believe that they did that. So that's the preferred route, and they've, they've suggested a few different routes. What position are you in at this point? What options do you have? Well, at the moment, uh, we had a community meeting Friday night to sort of discuss what our options were. Everyone's dead against it. There, there's real anger in the community with this project and the way Transgrid have consulted and just trying to bulldoze their way through and we, we thought, well, the best thing we can do is to stall it at every, every angle we can, buy ourselves time to you know, find a way to, to stop this project from happening. Right. And what kind of stalling tactics is the community talking about at this point? Well, that's a good question. Just preventing access to Transgrid as much as possible. Transgrid's preferred route, option C, runs north from the Victoria-New South Wales border around the town of Mullamine, before travelling east 
through the Murray River region to the Dinawan substation, which is north of Jerilderie. Under rules announced by the New South Wales government in 2022, landholders will receive $200,000 before tax per kilometre of new transmission infrastructure hosted on their land. That will be paid out in $10,000 instalments annually for 20 years. But Mr Edishank says there is no amount of compensation that would persuade him to support the transmission line project. I don't want it at all. I think the whole project is a folly. I think it's um, just being imposed on us from uh, you know this relentless push for, for, for renewables, which you know, it seems to be coming more from the city and we're copping the brunt of it. That report from Elsie Kennedy in a statement Transgrid said it was undertaking extensive consultation with landholders and the final route for the V&I West in New South Wales would be decided after further consideration of environmental and social impacts. It's a similar situation in Victoria with a group of farmers at Tregal, including Australia's largest emu farm, saying they'll lock their gates to transmission company Victoria and fight the construction of the V&I West transmission line project across their farms. Daniel Blytho is from the emu farmers company, the largest emu farm in Australia. He says the transmission line would be hugely disruptive to his operation. Basically, the, we're, we're fairly directly affected there. They're looking to put the lines over, pretty much over the corner of our property. Um, but as a whole, the community, you know, where, they, where they've got their draft corridor, it cuts through basically our entire township. So it's, it's about, you know, five to 800 metres from our, our main town at the furthest extent of their corridor. And at the closest, it's within, you know, three or 400 metres, basically. And what's both yours and, and your neighbours' opposition to, to having it cut through your properties? A lot of our community is cutting their properties in half, effectively. So a lot of their prime productive land that they run their entire business on, which is all either irrigation or, or um, dry land pasture, it's just chopping it in half and basically meaning they, they're losing their core production of their, their land and there are, I understand, also plans for a, a substation along the line at Tregal? Yeah, so they, um, look, we're, we're the direct neighbours of that, um, that substation. They've purchased the land without any community consultation. Um, we had a meeting back in October with them, and we put it to them that we knew that land was basically being purchased for the purposes of, of that substation, and they denied it, but we knew, and it had already been under conditional offer at that point from them, so... You know, for, in terms of a trust perspective, they hadn't been open and honest with us about what their plans were, and they haven't actually consulted with us who, I mean, we know a lot of our area and, and how the area responds in different times of the year and floods, and they didn't talk to us. I mean, that property is basically, in both flooding events recently, so 2022 and 2011, that almost the entire property was underwater, um, and they, they, they haven't really considered that. And they sort of seem to be conflicting stories because we've we've got the company TCV constantly telling us they're committed to good consultation. They're out and about, knocking on doors, meeting with people, running a, a, a shop in town in Kerrang where people can drop in. So, so on one hand, we've got them saying that, and then we've got yourself, other people, your neighbours, and others all saying that consultation's been been either really poor or or non-existent. Yeah, look, for example, we're meant to have a meeting in about two weeks' time. The first one since that, that uh, earlier one in October, they've held it in, they've put it in town in Kerrang when we have a perfectly functional air-conditioned hall in our community, which would mean probably 60 or 70% of the community can get there, but they're forcing people to drive into town. So they're only going to get 
probably 30%, even less of the people who actually are directly affected. Where to from here? Because, I mean, there are no indications that that the company's going to back away from this project. It's narrowed its route down to a fairly definitive pathway now. Uh, Do people think they can actually have any influence on on the future of this project? I mean, I'd hope to think so. We we as a community got together and, and basically offered a completely viable alternative route about five k's to the south of where they've got it, which avoided all of the housing issues that they've got. All the houses down that area are unoccupied or derelict. There was no uh, land subject to inundation, none of that, and it added, it added a nominal amount of, of transmission line to the overall route. We've heard nothing. They haven't come back and spoken to us about it. They haven't actually engaged with us and said, yep, we are actually going to do this, or no, we aren't. And it's, it's just making it incredibly difficult to even engage with them and, and want to see the project even continue. Dan, for yourselves and your neighbours who had it confirmed that it would go through or close to your properties, what's, what's the, been the feeling and the mood since then and how heavily is it weighing on the community? I mean, the community has been totally stripped of, of any life. No one's really talking to one another properly anymore. It's, it's a completely, completely depressed attitude. None of the community members I've spoken to uh, are wanting this to come through and, and it's just it's totally destroyed the fabric of, of our area. That is Daniel Blytho from the Emu Farmers Company at Tregal. They're speaking with Angus Verley. You're listening to the Country Hour. It is 18 past 12. You can always send us a text, 0467 842 722, if you'd like to. Somewhat connected to that, given the work for these transmission lines is about decarbonising Australia's economy, right, to use uh, renewable energy and connect it to the grid of those major renewable projects. A new cooperative research centre looking at reducing emissions, particularly in agriculture, is set to be the largest research centre of its kind in Australia. The incoming CEO of the Zero Net Emissions Ag CRC, Australia's largest cooperative research centre, says the aim is to beat national emissions reduction deadlines by up to 10 years. Fiona Broom reports. It's the country's biggest cooperative research centre, but you've probably never heard of it. The Zero Net Emissions Agriculture CRC has a $300 million budget, making it Australia's most cashed-up industry-led collaborative research centre. Richard Heath is the outgoing executive director of the Australian Farm Institute. In March, he'll become the first CEO of the Agriculture Emissions Research Centre. The Zero Net Emissions Ag CRC is brand new which is why not many people would have heard of it yet. What it is going to do is absolutely critical for the future of Australian agriculture in so many different ways, Um, given that its primary purpose is essentially to provide the science, the research, the knowledge, the extension to enable Australian agriculture to achieve net zero emissions, which is a huge goal for the industry, but a vitally and critically important one. Dr Heath says the Zero Net Emissions Agriculture CRC will have four core programs. The first will develop low emissions plant solutions for the broadacre and horticultural industries, as well as pasture systems. The second program will focus on bringing down methane emissions from livestock, the largest source of agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. A third program will analyse whole farms and mixed enterprise systems to join up research from all sectors. 
And a final program will investigate on-farm renewable energy and circular economy options. Dr Heath says achieving net zero goals will be challenging, but it's a challenge he relishes. Uh, yeah, it is a big goal. Um, and I, I think the size of the task, but, but the importance of the task, is really indicated by the size of the collaboration that has come together around this CRC. So it is the, the largest CRC that's ever been funded by the Commonwealth, $87 million from the Commonwealth over 10 years. But really importantly, 73 partners that have signed on to the CRC at the establishment phase. Um, and their contributions, uh, cash and in kind, will uh, bring the, the total available to the CRC over the 10 years to $300 million, which, you know, it, it is an indication of how many organisations, um, how Australian agriculture really looks at this issue and the need to provide solutions. And who are some of those partners that have been involved from the jump? The, the CRC bid was brokered by the University of Queensland and the Queensland Department of Agricultural, uh, Agriculture and Fisheries. Um, so they're the ones that, you know, really got the bid up and going. But the, the breadth of the organisations that have signed up, you know, at, at different um, levels of support, I think, again, is, is an indication of just how broad and important the problem is. So uh, there, there are partners in the research and development education community from universities, from research and development corporations across different sectors. Uh, there are partners in the input space from organisations like um, Elders and Nutrien, for instance, um, grower groups, um, farming groups, uh, and then you know right through to large agribusinesses like um, AACO, for instance. Um, and then importantly, we've also got several Indigenous organisations involved as well, because understanding Indigenous land management and you know how we can use some of those very you know long-term land management techniques that have been used for tens of thousands of years in Australia uh, and how they can help with the emissions reduction challenge will be really important and a, and a critical part of this CIC as well. And so what is the ultimate goal? Is it net zero agriculture in Australia by a certain date? Obviously, we have the economy-wide net zero targets from the Australian government of 43% uh, reduction below 2005 levels by 2030 and then net zero by 2050. Um, the National Farmers Federation supports that economy-wide target of net zero by 2050 as well. Um, the role of the CRC is to make sure that the solutions that are required to achieve those net zero targets are in place and achievable. So the net zero target for this CRC is actually by 2040, because if we aren't aiming you know, earlier than that 2050 target to provide the tools, the, the technology that, that can then be implemented uh, and, and achieve that 2050 target, um, then you know, it, we, we need to be going earlier than that to get those results. Former head of the Australian Farm Institute, soon to be the first CEO of the Zero Net Emissions Ag Cooperative Research Centre, or CRC, Richard Heath. He was speaking there to reporter Fiona Broom. It will be the largest cooperative research centre, uh, so the largest of its kind in Australia in terms of the amount of funding it has. And you got to hear there about what its plans are.
Come a little bit more local on farm now in Victoria. Farmers will soon be able to apply for telehandler-specific licences from July 1 this year after legislative changes were made to the Occupational Health and Safety Act to pave the way for change. Currently, farmers using telehandlers are required to complete a crane licence course, which they've described as costly, time-consuming and largely irrelevant. Ryan Milgate, a Wimmera farmer and the VFF's Grain Group Vice Chair, says the change has been a long time coming. Yeah, well, I think I remember speaking to Angus in about 2019 at the Wimmera Field Days, actually, around this issue. So it's been there a while. I guess, look, the 30-second the sort of roundup is telehandlers originally came into the country and were used in construction. So the licensing requirements sort of revolved around, you know, a construction situation. Um, and we ended up in a situation where they've ended up in agriculture and the licensing hasn't reflected that. And, and to be appropriately licensed, you had to go and get a a, uh, a license to drive what they call a, a frana crane or a non-slewing crane, so which is those funny-looking truck things. And, you know, we had a situation where it's just completely not relevant to how they're being used in agriculture. Okay, so that's that's the, the history to it. And then I think it was about 18 months ago now that the state government announced that a tally handler-specific licence would be developed. And now I suppose that the legislative boxes have been ticked to, to make that happen? Yeah, so that's been some um, media release from WorkSafe just recently on the fact that they have actually ticked the legislative box to develop a, a telehandler-specific licence. So, yeah, this process has taken, I think our first consultation meeting was in August 19 and then sort of COVID got in the way and then it, it was look, a much bigger probably project than we first appreciated. But, yeah, so we've got to this point now. What's come out in the release is that, yeah, WorkSafe have developed a telehandler licence, which will be applicable to agricultural users, and there's been training developed around that also. And the important questions, though, Ryan, and I'm not sure if this detail is clear, but around with that licence, the cost of it, uh, how long it will take to complete it, and just making sure that it is actually applicable to agriculture? Yeah, so I think that the cost and the the cost and the duration and 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 location, I guess, are things we don't know yet. So there's been a, a training course designed. So it's up to individual RTOs, you know, um, training organisations to take those units and run them. So I guess that's a commercial decision on their behalf. So that's where I guess the devil is in the detail with how it will actually be delivered. So. All along from a VFF point of view, we wanted training that was relevant, accessible and affordable. So we've got the relevant box ticked and the accessible and affordable part now comes down to the actual people that provide that training. That's Ryan Milgate, a Wimmera farmer and the VFF's Grain Group Vice Chair, speaking to Angus Verley there about a telehandler-specific licence, which should be more useful to farmers as well. Gosh, there's a lot of telehandlers out there. I wonder what that means around your licensing in the past. You can always send us a text. If you're working on one today, send it in, 0467 842 722. Love hearing from you on the Country Hour. Love to hear from you on our interview that we have coming up, looking at, well, agriculture, some of the the strongly held beliefs around agriculture and some of where some calls could be for changes, including 
uh, discussions like this. And I hope to some extent that we start to challenge a little bit some of the things that are coming out from the sort of vegan vegetarian movements that livestock are not necessary. Livestock are very necessary within an agricultural system. They are important part points of actually recycling nutrients in those systems. And that seems to have been forgotten. That's coming up on The Country Hour. I'd be interested to know your thoughts in statements like that. You can always text 0467 842 We have weather on the way right now, though. Let's find out what's making rural news this lunchtime. Georgie Carroll has that for us today. Good afternoon, Georgie. G'day, Was. Dairy giant Fonterra has dumped a 25 million litre milk contract with historic Woolnorth owners Van Dairy Limited. Fonterra Australia Farm Source Director Matt Watt declined to discuss the details, but confirmed the decision was based on a number of commercial factors the two parties had been unable to resolve. Mr Watt said Fonterra had not collected milk from all VDL farms since February 1 and had provided Van Dairy with several months' notice. Van Dairy owner Zhen Fen Lu says that he is disappointed by the development but remains fully committed to his dairy farms and the Circular Head region. Hundreds of farmers in Wales are holding a tractor drive and protest over policies they say will make it impossible for them to earn a living. They say a push from the Welsh Government to lower emissions by mandating farmers turn some of their land over to environment, a change to how some farming payments are made, and poor management of bovine tuberculosis are forcing many out of the industry. We're all in this together. I will be standing so that I can look my son in the eye and tell him, I did what I could to give you the future that you deserve. And this evening I'm calling on Mark Drakeford, the First Minister, and Leslie Griffiths, the Rural Affairs Minister, to meet with representatives of the meetings in Welshpool and here this evening, so that we can take that message to the heart of government and admit that what you're trying to force on the industry doesn't work, will not work. We've seen the impact assessment, five and a half thousand jobs, hundreds of millions of pounds lost in farm earnings. There is no way that you can stand up and describe that as a just transition. We will leave no stone unturned. Australian native finger limes have a new champion to try and get more people eating the fruit. The colour, bursts of flavour and texture of the delicious tiny round cells of citrus found in the finger limes is something unique to Australia. Chair of the newly formed Australian Native Finger Lime Alliance, Jade King, says she has big plans. Uh, I've had a lot of support and a lot of enthusiasm from different growers. Just the board itself has been an amazing group of people that are really passionate about trying to make sure that we maintain that provenance of our fruit. Also looking at how we can increase our production and the markets for it and sort of, I suppose, lead it in Australia. And the enthusiasms, we've got producers here that don't just deal with fresh fruit, they're doing cosmetics, they're doing powders, dried fruit. It's such an expensive industry and definitely there's room to grow. After a six-year wait, the small central Queensland town of Claremont finally has a doctor. Abby Holter reports. Dr Tim Lane is a popular person in the rural town of Claremont right now. Residents have been anxiously waiting for someone like him to move in for about six years. He's the new permanent general practitioner at the local hospital and is no stranger to rural medicine. I had this lovely 
60-year-old lady um, come into the hospital um, holding her under her arm and she said she was hit by her bull, pulled it up and it was just an arterial spray just spraying everywhere um, and there was a massive hole going in so the bull horn had gone in and punctured her lungs um, and that's just the type of person that country people are. You know, she walked in. Dr Tim understands why it's far easier to attract medical staff to jobs in the city. Rural GPs are really hard because there's minimal incentives to come out. Most of the pay-wise, you get the same rebates from Medicare, whether you're city, rural or not. Uh, Rural is generally a poorer socioeconomic, so it's hard to privately bill rurally. Lunar New Year celebrations kick off tomorrow, with communities worldwide ushering in the Year of the Dragon. In Australia, this is always a boom time for farmers who grow bright tropical fruits. Han Shang Sia, a farmer near Darwin, has been flat out over the last few weeks getting pomelos, the world's largest citrus fruit, to market. Uh, it's been a smaller crop this year, Matt. Um, it's, uh, we've, we've, we've probably picked about half of what we normally would for the Chinese New Year shipment. Um, we have officially finished, but the demand is greater than expected. So we've pretty much, as soon as it arrived, it was out within an hour. We are actually putting, we put a probably another 300 more trees of pomelos in um, to meet our, meet our demand. Um, they've just gone in, so hopefully the, within maybe another two, three more years, they will be online and we'll be able to harvest. We'll have a greater crop and better uh, yield than what we've got this year. Happy New, New Year to everyone who's listening. Gong si fa tai, And that's what's making rural news. Thanks very much for that, Georgie, and happy Lunar New Year to all that are celebrating as well uh, on the weekend. I hope you have a great celebration. Pomelos sound like a pretty good gift too. I don't, I'm trying to remember the last time I ate a pomelo. I've definitely eaten one, but that's probably the grand total of pomelos I've eaten in my life. 0467842722 is the text line. We were speaking about telehandlers licenses earlier. I do love this text saying, hi, was when we got our first telehandler the old man said you'll never use it now there's a hard hardly a day he doesn't use it fantastic bit of kit for hay and general farm use so much safer and quicker quicker than a front end loader thanks very much for that text as well well now the old man can go and get a license well maybe from july 1 too as we've been learning about telehandler specific licenses being developed in victoria and uh this from john john hamilton and i apologize if we get the uh, town name wrong it's near talangatak uh I saw a header still working was near Canagolk last night. Thought of your story earlier in the week. Re the long harvest, says John in Hamilton. John, there's a few still out there, aren't there? And it sounds like they've been really long harvest, particularly in that part of the world. They might have been going from November to February as well. Uh, huge, huge uh, effort for many harvesting this year. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. You can always comment. On the stories we're doing, I'll tell us something new like that one, like John from Hamilton. Let's go to the Weather Bureau and find out what's happening weather-wise for today into the weekend. And then next week, Lincoln Trainer can uh, take us through all of those details. A senior forecaster from the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Lincoln. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? Oh, I'm going well. I'm in sunny Shepparton today, blue skies and, and nine. Not many uh, fluffy, fluffy clouds at all for my window today. No. It's just, just blue. How's it looking around the state? It's pretty similar around the state. Yeah, 26 degrees at the moment in Shepparton, looking for a top of 31 for you. But, yeah, it's a little bit cloudier in the south, but it's sunny definitely across the north. There is a moderate southerly kind of extending across the state. 
from this afternoon. That brings kind of cool conditions to the south, but, you know, warm conditions remaining in the north. Uh, Mildura will see about 35, Horsham 30. Sale will be 24, a little bit cooler in the south, but a very uh, nice day on Friday and pretty similar on Saturday. We've got a ridge really dominating Victoria. Uh, that high with that ridge will move to the south of the state and uh, into the Tasman by Sunday. And really the next bit of weather that uh, will impact the public will be um, more kind of late Sunday, early Monday. We'll see a trough developing over Western Victoria uh, and that could bring some dry lightning um, and some elevated thunderstorms over the western parts late Sunday, early Monday morning. So we'll be just checking that with the SES around Fire Sparks because uh, it's going to be a fairly warm weekend in the north, warming up by Sunday. So, you know, we'll see a sunny day, uh, hot in the far north. Mildura will start to get to 38, Horsham 36. So it's getting a few degrees warmer in the north on Sunday and that leads into Monday and Tuesday as a trough uh, approaches and go, the winds turn northerly, um, so it'll be sunny up there and, and hot. Um, Mildura will be 39 on Monday um, and then kind of 38 uh, Tuesday. So if we're looking at some of those impacts um, for Tuesday is the day, so fire danger ratings will be increasing in the northwest to extreme, uh, potential fire weather warning Tuesday in the Mallee and Wimmera. Um, there'll be possible thunderstorms in the central and eastern parts of the state uh, on Tuesday and potential for heavy rain and damaging winds. We're not expecting a big rainfall event, but there's absolutely a chance of some heavy rainfall out of some thunderstorms across the central uh, and ranges on Tuesday, and then they will linger a little bit in the northeast Wednesday before we get back into some cooler conditions. So there is some some rain there on the on the forecast, but not really a big event for some time. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, not not a big event at the moment. We're seeing. I was just looking at the uh, potential totals: five to fifteen mil through some of the central districts and um, the ranges on Tuesday. But it's a fairly quick moving trough, so that will clear us by Tuesday night, and then we're back into settled conditions from uh, Wednesday. And look, the fruit growers around the Golden Valley where I am or along the Murray, the dried fruit guys around uh, the northwest of the state, they'll all be happy for a dry-sounding forecast. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep the disappointment of my voice. But warnings-wise, anyway, Lincoln, is there, uh, is there any warnings expected either today or across the weekend? No, I mean, uh, we have for Saturday, for those out in the bay, strong wind warning for Central Coast and Central Gippsland Coast. But really, all eyes are on this potential fire warning, uh, weather warning for Mallee and Wimmera on Tuesday. Um, that will be all eyes on that one. And whether we'll see a severe thunderstorm on Tuesday as well. Well, OK, so that'll, that'll be the next time we really need to check in on that. Uh, anything else we need to know before we let you go? Uh, nothing else. Um, no, I think it's going to be, uh, if you like a warm weekend in the north and sunny conditions, you're definitely going to get that. And not a lot of rainfall on the horizon at the moment. I'll make sure my drink bottle's full for tennis on the weekend. Lincoln, thank you for that. No problems. Take care, Warwick. Lincoln Trader there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast. Now look, if there was ever an advertisement for telehandler licensing, it's just come in on the Country Out text line. An anonymous person has sent some photos to us saying, look, telehandlers are amazing. Backpacker drivers, not so much. And uh, 
There are three photos of a telehandler. I don't know if it's three different events or if it's the same event from different angles. Uh, the horizontal. Uh, well, vertical, really, isn't it? I suppose it depends on which way you're talking about. You're looking at the telehandler. Not as it should be. On its front wheels, sitting on its nose with the, with the arm extended, uh, straight up in the sky. Looks like a very difficult situation to be in and uh, not a good place for the farm equipment. So thank you, Anonymous Texter, for sending us probably the best advertisement for why telehandler licensing could be important. You can send us a text about that or indeed from our next story, which is looking at some of the strongly held beliefs in agriculture and whether they're right or wrong, according to a visiting academic. Australia's farming systems could learn from small holders who work in harmony with ecology and livestock, uh, as a livestock disease expert says. After growing up on a dairy farm in England's Lancashire County, Jonathan Rushton has studied farming systems around the world for decades and yesterday gave the keynote address at the Australasian Agricultural and Resource Economics Society Conference. Ahead of his address, Professor Rushton told Fiona Broom he's encouraged by the growing appreciation for soil health he's seeing in Australia. I grew up carrying buckets of milk around between the cows, washing up uh, dairy units, dipping the cows, feeding the cows. I grew up around dairy cattle, uh, the British Frisians, and we had a very traditional kind of farming system with tethered cows feeding hay, uh, concentrate feed and, and barley grains to those animals. And in the summer, I spent time scything down thistles in the, in the pastures. So it was, looking back on it, quite an idyllic, idyllic piece of, of my lifetime. And things changed when I left home. Uh, my dad invested in a more complex parlour system. And then as things changed with the, the dairy industry and the marketing of milk, uh, my dad quit in about 1993, which was fortunate because that's when the supermarkets really took hold and prices for milk at farm gate level dropped and stabilised for about 10 years, which drove a lot of people out of business. You've worked across the world. Have there been similarities between the kind of systems that you grew up with and some of those systems you've seen around the world? To some extent, yes. I mean, it's interesting to reflect back on my family's sort of work in the, in the dairy area. My dad started with eight cows. My, my grandpa had about 12 cows in, in the local areas and delivered milk to local communities. And those types of systems I've, I've definitely seen in places like India and Mexico and, and South America. But the kind of intensive systems that I worked in certainly were not the case in places like India. So I, d I did my master's and PhD research and also in Kenya looking at smallholder farms with maybe two to five head of cattle. And those systems are very different in terms of how they operate within a sort of confines of an ecological system and perhaps not too many intensive inputs into those systems. The animal health care within those systems was not ideal. There was lots of circulating infectious disease problems in the places I've worked in. So I'm probably one of the few people of my generation to have seen rinderpest and foot and mouth disease and anthrax all in the same sort of locations, which obviously are a real deterrence from managing animals in a slightly more intensive way. Is there something that each farming system could learn from the other? Is there a practice that's done well, for example, by smallholders that, that farms in Australia might be able to learn from? Smallholder farms in the kind of context that I've worked in developing countries, in poorer countries, tend to have to actually work with the ecology of the systems that they live in. 
And I think that's something potentially we've we've lost a little bit over the last sort of couple of generations of farming practice, where we're very reliant on thinking about modifying the environment rather than thinking about working with the environment. But I see that there's a movement now here in Australia where regenerative agriculture is becoming um, a very common idea. Um, the carbon credit movement within Australia is something that's becoming increasingly important in terms of how people view and respect the soils that we're working with. And, and these challenges, I think, are going to become greater over time. So if there's one thing that I hope we move towards in, in a stronger sense, it's probably a return back to the idea of working with the ecology that we're actually part of and thinking about how we maintain it and add value to it. What I'm encouraged by is, is the movement of regenerative farming. We're now talking about the importance of soil health and how do we actually not just maintain soil health, but how do we add to soil health? And people are starting to challenge ideas and, and, and philosophies about farming that have been very strong for maybe a 50-year period and actually start to think more carefully about how do we actually incorporate livestock, do grazing in a, in a better way? How do we do mix of crops and livestock in terms of actually maintaining soils? And I hope to some extent that we start to challenge a little bit some of the things that are coming out from the sort of vegan vegetarian movements that livestock are not necessary livestock are very necessary within an agricultural system they are important part points of actually recycling nutrients in those systems and that seems to have been forgotten by people who are perhaps not very aware of the sort of farming that we actually do Professor Rushton looks at food systems from what's called a One Health perspective. That's the idea that the health of humans, animals and the environment are all linked. The One Health approach says healthy humans need healthy ecosystems, wildlife and livestock. The movement itself, I think, has sort of come out of a, a recognition of diseases that come out of livestock or come out of animals and move into humans. But it's much broader than that. It's actually thinking more carefully about how are we actually impacting the environment with what we do, be it changing the way plants grow in, in the natural environment or deforesting areas to actually grow crops. What impact do we then have on the sort of biodiversity and what impact does that have overall in terms of our own future and our sustainability of our future? There's obviously, after the COVID-19 outbreak, many concerns about diseases that come out of animals and can be transferred into humans. That has driven more strongly the need to actually think more holistically about health, not just thinking about human health, but thinking about environmental health and livestock health to actually improve what we get from the systems we depend on. So from a One Health perspective, can we maintain the numbers of livestock that we have in our food systems uh, and also have good environmental, human and animal health? I think that's, uh, that's one of our biggest challenges um, to think about the number of animals we keep. I mean, if you look at the sheer numbers of livestock and, and aquatic species we're keeping now, it's extraordinary in terms of its context and the amount of available meat and fish that we're actually generating is much higher than it's ever been historically. Much of that animal biomass, those animals themselves are actually being fed by cropping systems and breaking into kind of new territories, although that's slowed down recently. But it's still an important consideration about do we keep doing increasing of the number of animals to feed ourselves or do we actually sort of have to think about shifting our diets to something perhaps a little bit less intrusive in, in, in that natural environment. There's a need to think very carefully about the use of feed grains and oilseed crops into livestock systems and also the knock-on impact in terms of our own nutrition with regards eating quite high levels of, of, of meat in, in that sense. I think we have to be a little bit more moderated in terms of what we expect from the livestock sectors and think more carefully about valuing meat in a, in a much more traditional way where it's not a, a regular thing we eat every day. It's something that we 
view as a sort of treat, something that's actually respected in that sense. And no, I'm not a, a vegan or vegetarian. I'm very much a, a person who eats meat, dairy products. I just think we need to sort of think more carefully about the impacts of that food system across uh, different parts of the world. That's Jonathan Rushton, Professor of Animal Health and Food Systems Economics at the University of Liverpool and gave the keynote address at the Australasian Agricultural and Resource Economic Society conference yesterday. He was speaking there to Fiona Broom. It is 12 to 1 here on the Country Hour Warwick along with you this lunchtime. Let's talk fencing now on the program because for many farmers the idea of virtual fencing has long been a holy grail. The possibility of drawing fence lines on a smartphone could help farmers not only save on infrastructure that they don't have to physically build anymore but labour costs and but also could help utilise pastures in a much more efficient and better way. The problem is virtual fencing is banned in Victoria as well as New South Wales, South Australia, the Northern Territory and the ACT with exceptions for research purposes, although it is operating as a tool in places like Tasmania and New Zealand. So what's the likelihood of change? Josh Becker filed this report. Bega Valley dairy farmer Phil Ryan is using ag tech on his farm. He's using wearable technology on his cows and he's interested in the possibility of virtual fencing. I've got collars on my cows now, not for electric fencing purposes, but the equivalent virtually of a Fitbit type device for a cow, which gives me real-time wireless information on that cow's activity and health and that helps me with breeding decisions and and joinings and even with health alerts for for animals that might be sick that I can go and check on. Virtual fencing is the containment of animals without fixed fences which is done by providing signals to the animals including an audio cue which tells the animal it's approaching the invisible boundary. This is then paired with an electric shock if the animal continues to go forward. I think it's a really exciting opportunity for the dairy industry in particular with our quieter cows that are used to strip grazing and and temporary fencing, moving around twice a day to and from the dairy shed and has a a labour requirement for somebody to actually go and get those cows twice a day. I, I think that there's a real potential there for labour saving and time efficiencies and and probably better pasture utilisation and and possibly even better animal welfare outcomes. Chair of the New South Wales Farmers Dairy Committee, Phil Ryan, understands the animal welfare concerns but believes dairy cows are very trainable. The only way this works for farmers if it also works for cows. So I would share some of that concern and yet There are commercial applications with, I believe I'm correct in saying, hundreds of thousands of cows wearing these collars now. And that's a pretty solid base of data for seeing how they work in practice. If we look at conventional fencing with electric fences or barbed wire and those sorts of things, then I don't think that there's any greater risk and impact, I would suggest, a lower risk of animals having a problem. Independent member for Orange Phil Donato has tabled a notice of motion to the New South Wales Parliament last year which aimed at amending the Act which currently restricts the use of virtual fencing in the state due to those animal welfare concerns. It's expected to be debated in February and Mr Donato is confident it will garner enough support. And, and I'm of the view that this is a potential opportunity uh, for 
uh, New South Wales to, to amend legislation to ensure that virtual fencing is legal, that farmers here in New South Wales are able to remain competitive with their other states throughout, uh, throughout Australia where virtual fencing is legal because, uh, like I said, there's benefits including uh, things like uh, easy, ease of rotational grazing of stock, uh, tracking livestock, checking on the condition and, and, and uh, health of animals, uh, it saves on the cost of fencing, which is a huge thing for uh, for farmers as well, especially internal fencing on on, on large farms. Uh, we all know that the price of fencing is quite expensive, and it goes up uh, almost annually. So uh, that's just a number of, of just a few things. There are a number of other factors which uh, certainly make it, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, beneficial for farming and the ag sector that we remain. I guess. Uh, up to date with technology and remain competitive and provide our farmers here in New South Wales this opportunity to be able to embrace this technology and obtain the benefits from virtual fencing that it would provide them. The RSPCA declined an interview, but in a statement, a spokesperson said the RSPCA is opposed to the use of electronically activated devices that deliver an electric shock to animals, as these are aversive. And while virtual fencing remains illegal in New South Wales, in New Zealand, more than 150,000 cows are using virtual fencing collars, and in Tasmania, around 20,000 cows, around 11% of the total herd. Caroline Lee, Senior Principal Research Scientist at CSIRO, says the welfare impacts are minimal. The key principles, I think, around animals learning how to interact with virtual fencing is that they need to have um, a predictable and a controllable interaction with the fence so that they understand what they need to do to avoid receiving an electric shock. The research that you know ourselves and others have done has shown that after around, on average, three interactions with the virtual boundary, we are seeing that animals learn to avoid receiving the electric shock and they respond to the audio cue alone. I imagine a key question from farmers is, is it safe and is it okay to use on animals? What's your view? Um, well, as I said, the research that we've done and, and others have done to date does show that the welfare impacts of virtual fencing are minimal um, when it has these two important components. We have done studies where we've compared, compared a conventional electric fence sorry, with a virtual fence and we have found that there weren't differences in any of the welfare measures that we took. And these were things like stress hormone levels and behavioural patterns. So in that context, it seems to be okay from a welfare perspective. However, this study was over four weeks and as far as I know, there hasn't been any really long-term studies of the welfare impacts of virtual fencing. So I would say that that's a knowledge gap that probably needs to be investigated to ensure that welfare is acceptable over longer periods of time. That's Caroline Lee, Senior Principal Research Scientist at the CSIRO, ending that report from Josh Becker. And just before we go on the country out today, follow this one under homework from us. We've been talking a lot about skin cancer prevention and detection on ABC Rural. And we heard from many of you saying that you'd had a long wait to get into skin clinics without a GP referral when you've found a spot that you don't like the look of. But we've also heard that if you tell your GP you've got a suspect spot and work in the sun, they'll act fast to get it checked out. Emma Glassenberry is the head of the Cancer Council Victoria's SunSmart program. She says they run a training program to teach GPs to learn and assess and manage potential skin cancers. 
So what we recommend um, at SunSmart is for people really to get to know their own skin and if they notice any changes or anything they're concerned about with new spots, to visit their doctor, their GP. Is it just a dermatologist who can assess and diagnose melanomas or skin cancers or um, can GPs sort of begin that process? Your GP is absolutely your first port of call. So if you visit your doctor, they should be able to make an assessment and then refer you on to a dermatologist if they feel it is necessary. Um, More and more GPs are being trained in skin cancer early detection, um, also through our SunSmart Demoscopy GP training program, which has a focus on doctors in regional Victoria as well. And what is dermoscopy? Dermoscopy is a technique that detects skin cancers early and accurately. So it's like a magnifying glass that doctors are trained to use to help them detect skin cancers. Do farm and agriculture workers rank highly amongst those diagnosed with skin cancers and melanoma? So what we know is that people in regional Victoria are more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma than those living in major cities in Victoria. And part of the reason for this is their constant and repeated exposure to the sun's UV radiation, which leads to skin cancer. But the good news is that skin cancer is almost entirely preventable with the use of good sun protection. So covering up using all five forms of sun protection when outdoors. So we encourage everyone before heading outdoors to check the UV levels and if they're three and above, to cover up using all five forms of sun protection. So this includes wearing covering clothing, slopping on high SPF sunscreen to parts of the body that aren't covered by clothing, wearing a wide brim hat, seeking shade where possible and sliding on sunglasses. Why are sunglasses important? Sunglasses are really important because the UV can also do damage to the eyes. So it's not only skin, but also causing eye damage as well. So sunglasses are really important to protect the eyes. You said before you'd recommend getting to know your own skin. If someone sees something on their skin that they think might look suspicious, what does suspicious actually look like or feel like? Yes, that's a good question. So it could be a new spot, a completely new spot that you're not familiar with, or it could be a change in an existing spot or an existing mole. So change in colour changing size, changing the shape, so asymmetry as well. And so it's really detecting any of those changes and that is a trigger to book an appointment to see your local doctor or GP. That is uh, Emma Glassenberry from the Cancer Council Victoria. She's the head of the SunSmart program. Finishing that uh, report with Fiona Broom. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Plenty coming up next week. We'll go to the Australian Dairy Conference in Melbourne. We'll broadcast from there as well as bring you a lot of rural news and information from a wide range of industries in Victoria. I'll leave the last word today to Tony on the text. He says, I'd love virtual fencing for our dairy. I'd install them today if I could. It's a great labour saving, says Tony on the text. Have a great weekend. We'll catch you.